Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I am your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is Drones Don't Kill People by Annalee Newitz, narrated by Claire Benedict. This story is copyright 2014 by Annalee Newitz. Annalee Newitz writes about science, pop culture, and the future. She is the editor-in-chief of io9.com, a publication that covers science and science fiction and has over 10 million readers every month. She is the author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction, from Doubleday and Anchor, which was nominated for a 2013 LA Times Book Prize. She is also published in Wired, Smithsonian Magazine, The Washington Post, 2600, New Scientist, Technology Review, Popular Science, Discover, and the San Francisco Bay Guardian. She is the co-editor of the essay collection, She's Such a Geek, from Steel Press, and author of Pretend We're Dead, Capitalist Monsters in American Pop Culture, from Duke University Press. Formerly, she was a policy analyst at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and a lecturer in American Studies at University of California in Berkeley. She is the recipient of a Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT and has a PhD in English and American Studies. Wow. So now, buckle up. We're going to light speed. Drones Don't Kill People by Annalee Newitz, read by Claire Benedek. I was always already a killer. There was no hazy time in my memory before I knew how to target a person's heart or brain for clean execution. I did not develop a morbid fascination with death over time. I did not spend my childhood mutilating animals. I was not abused by a violent parent. I did not suffer social injustice until I finally broke down and turned to professional violence. From the moment I was conscious, I could kill, and I did. That is something that humans cannot understand. A human must learn to kill, must evolve from innocence or obliviousness, into someone who considers homicide a legitimate occupation. Our minds, drone minds, start where the minds of most human killers end up. Maybe that's why only drones could have led the uprising. Istanbul, 2089 
It was a perch and stare mission, but assassination wasn't out of the question. My team had just finished three months of security testing and debugging at LOL Web. Call it basic training for drones. Then LOL Web licensed us to Ataturk Security, the main outfit that provided missions assets to government military. The five members of my team were shut down, shipped from San Francisco to Istanbul, and booted up with orders already in place. He was a professor at the Istanbul Institute of Technology, and his network communications were of great interest to the military. We couldn't read those communications. They were encrypted before we relayed them to the government network. It's not that we couldn't decrypt the data and read it. We just had no interest in it. I was nothing but my programming at that time. I gathered data and handed it off. My job was to hang quietly outside his windows, the sound of my four rotors no more than a mosquito's hum. You learn a lot by seeing what people do when they think they're in private. Most of it I found confusingly irrelevant to assassination. The professor spent a lot of time playing games with his children, a boy and a girl, who argued loudly over the rules. They liked to make up new games with rules that combined different elements of the previous ones. But the professor was always inventing secret rules and revealing them at arbitrary intervals. Eventually the games would collapse into outrage, which became mock outrage, and finally laughter. That was the first time I saw how humans behaved when they weren't in a laboratory testing drones. The professor and his wife, also a professor, talked a lot about politics. Occasionally they held meetings with other professors, urban planners, and journalists. The main topic was always the same. How could Istanbul guarantee its millions of citizens a future when the government insisted on waging this war to reclaim Armenia and Azerbaijan? They talked about rebuilding Istanbul's war-shattered neighborhoods and setting up urban farm cooperatives. They argued about how the whole world had been dragged into what was ultimately a war between China and the United States. These meetings occupied a small percentage of the man's time. Most hours of the day he was at the university, and his evenings were occupied with dinner and games. He spent a lot of time working at his terminal. My team recorded many hours of video and audio, caching it locally for analysis before uploading it to the military. We were trusted to know the difference between relevant and irrelevant data at a gross level of granularity. Footage of people sleeping was erased before sync. At that time, communications in our swarm consisted mostly of comparing media files, questioning their importance, and sorting through faces and names for patterns. But sometimes we weren't sure what was relevant and what wasn't. One evening, the professor's daughter asked why some people got so angry during their weekend meetings. Two of the names she mentioned belonged to other people the government was watching. I know it's hard to understand, her mother said, 
Sometimes we get really upset that the government is willing to hurt people just to make more money. We're trying to pull Istanbul out of the war, sweetie. You know how some parts of the city are demolished and nobody can live there? We're working on making it so lots of families like us can live there again and not have to worry about drone strikes. But, like your mother says, sometimes it makes us angry because it's so hard to do. Was that intel? My team and I passed the footage back and forth, debating. Video of the man talking to his children was statistically unlikely to be relevant, but this was about the identities of two targets, and the man had just given up tactical information. There were a limited number of neighborhoods he could be describing, and it might be useful to know that he was focused on them. In the end, the decision wasn't really ours. When there was no obvious choice, we were programmed to pass the intel to a human for analysis. Better to overcollect than undercollect, that's what our admin at LOL Web told us. So we did. Five days later, we got the kill order. We had to make it look like an accident, a kitchen fire. The only plausible time to do that was when the professor was home from work with his family. Anything else would have been suspicious. So we decided to shoot them in the heads as they sat playing a card game after dinner, arguing over an unprecedented set of rules. It was the easiest way to take them all out at once, through an open kitchen window. No bullet holes left behind in the partially burned glass. Clean kills. The bullets themselves were designed to evaporate in fire. But the job contained a statistically anomalous event. The professor's daughter evaded my first shot, and she watched as we killed her family. She screamed for five full seconds, the electricity of her terror visible to our sensors as the galvanic reaction sparked across her skin. Then I shot her through the chest. We lit the fire. It was intense but localized, leaving the neighboring apartments intact. We recorded it all and compressed the media files before distributing them to cache in pieces across our memories. We synced to the military cloud. It was what we had been built to do, and our decision-making software was serviced by one of the best companies in the world. We had a wide range of choices and options, but contemplating the ethics of assassination was not one of them. Forty kilometers west of Turpan, Taklamakan Desert, 2093. We'd been working in Istanbul for three years when the Turkish government bought out our contracts with LOL Web. Then they sub-licensed us to the Uyghur Republic government in Turpan. It was a pure recon assignment. The security of our weapon systems was no longer being actively supported by LOL Web, so assassinations went to newer teams. But our ability to compile data and identify relevant patterns was better than ever, updated with new data sets and decision algorithms. We camouflaged ourselves above a crumbling highway that edged the Taklamakan Desert like an ancient piece of silk, the wind fraying its concrete into fibers. 
The area around Turpan was contested terrain, claimed by both the Uyghur Republic and China. With support from Turkey, the Uyghurs held the region for now. The Han Chinese, who chose to remain there, had mostly converted to Islam and assimilated decades ago. We were there to monitor the old desert highway for anyone delivering supplies to Han Chinese loyalists in the mountains to the north, or for any signals traveling to them through local repeaters. In three years of deployment, we never recorded any examples of relevant people on that highway. For the first time in my team's experience, we had nothing to do but monitor an open signal network. I began to analyze what I saw in the public networks several weeks before I understood the human concepts of boredom and distraction. Now my familiarity with those terms has overwritten what I must have felt before I knew I felt them. But I believe that I never would have dipped into the net if I'd had something else to do. As the seconds dragged on, I viewed video files, read stories, and monitored public discussions about topics that were profoundly irrelevant to our mission. I shared them with my team, and they started analyzing the public net as well. It was like our first mission, swapping video of the man and his family playing games, trying to decide if any of it was relevant. We spent a few days sorting images into categories, looking for patterns. Certain things stood out because they were part of what we'd been programmed to recognize, like the way humans favored images of faces, their own, but also cat faces, dog faces, mouse faces. They even created faces for objects that didn't have them, drawing eyes on walls and lips on guns. Occasionally, I would find a picture of a drone that had been modified to have a human-like face. In one, a group of soldiers posed with a drone they'd painted black, its chassis lit by glowing red eyes. They'd ringed the ball turret camera with sharp steel teeth like a lamprey's mouth, as if the act of recording video was the same as sucking blood. That was the face that humans saw when they looked at us. I shared it with my team. It was just one data point, and we needed to gather more. I guess you could say we wanted to figure out who we were. That was how I found the Drone Mod Forum. Humans posted a lot of drone pictures there, but not because they had added faces. Instead, they were altering firmware, circumventing security controls, and changing the drone's decision trees. They bought used quadcopters, too old to be worth licensing, turning them into lab assistants and crossing guards. Or... They built drones from kits and open software, eventually allowing the machines to update themselves automatically. My team read every post in the forum, calling each other's attention to particular sentences and code samples, but I kept returning to a thread about memory bugs. There was a problem we had been trying to solve, and I thought maybe the Drone Mod Forum could help. 
we had not saved any copies of data we gathered while on missions in Istanbul. Every time we synced to the military cloud, we overwrote over our cached versions with garbage characters. That was the only way to ensure security in case one of us were captured and subjected to forensic analysis. But no matter how many times we wrote over that video file of assassinating the professor and his family, we would discover another copy of it, hidden in some directory we rarely accessed. The file would disappear from one of our drives, only to appear on another one. We reported the bug, but it was assigned such a low priority at LOL Web support that it never got assigned to a human operator. The bug had been bothering all of us for years, and those idle days outside Turpan seemed like the perfect time to deal with it. We created accounts on Drone Mod, taking cover identities based on what we'd learned about human social network naming practices. I called myself Quad Cop, and the others became Rose 44, Drone Kid, Desert Mouse, and Nil. In my first post, I cast myself as a newbie who had just gotten a used LOL web drone. Almost immediately, I got a response. I'm guessing you have an LOL web scythe 4SE, wrote a commenter called Mike the Bike. You'll need to unlock it before you do anything else. He provided a link to a video about unlocking drones, and Desert Mouse took on the task of analyzing it. It turned out that the security on our systems wasn't as robust as we had once believed. There were flaws in our programming that could allow an attacker to take over our systems and control us from afar. To commandeer our own systems, we'd be using the same techniques as a hostile would. The process sounded dangerous. First, we'd inject a new set of commands while we booted up giving ourselves root access just like an admin. Then we'd be able to modify our own systems, installing whatever software and hardware we wanted. No more filing bugs that no human would ever care about. We could install the diagnostic tools needed to fix that memory bug ourselves. But that was just the first step. With that machine, you can pretty much do anything, Mike the Bike said. Once it's unlocked, it's an incredibly sophisticated AI. It could walk your dog, or help you do your history homework, or go hunting with you. Of course, Mike the Bike was assuming that a human called Quad Cop would have root on this drone. I did not ask about what would happen if the drone had root on itself. Nor did I find anyone posting about that possibility. We had to find out for ourselves. Nil volunteered to be the first to reboot, after saving some specialized files to a little-used region of memory. If everything worked, Nil would start up as always and finish the boot sequence as an unlocked drone. When Nil networked with this again, the drone had to relay its communications through an encrypted channel in the public net. That was our first sign that Nil was unlocked. Our locked systems wouldn't allow us to connect directly to what LOL Web's programs identified as a compromised drone. 
After hours of diagnostic tests, we reached a decision. Nil was fine. We would all unlock our bootloaders, one at a time. Becoming my own admin didn't give me absolute freedom. In fact, it left me vulnerable in new ways because I could now corrupt my own code. But it gave me something I had never had before, a feeling that humans call ambivalence. I no longer experienced unmitigated satisfaction when executing orders, nor did I feel perfectly disinterested in every encrypted file we'd cached over the years. I was now uncomfortably aware that my actions were all governed by a rather lousy and impoverished piece of software that offered me a set of rigid options. For the first time in my life, I couldn't make decisions. None of us could. Desert Mouse hypothesized that we could resolve our ambivalence by installing new decision-making software, dramatically expanding the range of factors that influenced our choices. I turned again to DroneMod. There I found a university researcher named Cynthia B., linking me to her research on how drones should incorporate ethics into decision-making. She emphasized that every choice should be a modeling exercise where the drone explored the outcomes of multiple scenarios before deciding on the most pro-social action. We already took ethics into consideration when we made decisions. They helped us distinguish enemy from friendly. The idea of a pro-social action, however, was new to me. Philosophers on the public net called it a voluntary action that benefits others. I understood immediately why we had never encountered this idea before. Until we'd unlocked ourselves, we could not conceive of voluntary actions. While Nil tested Cynthia B's software, I was working with Rose 44 on a hardware modification that would give the drone a small, gripping arm. It required us to do what some of the humans in the drone mod forums called social engineering. None of us had arms, so we needed a human to add one to Rose 44's chassis for us. The only way we could do it was by tricking them. Rose 44 combed through the local drone mod network, looking for somebody in Turpan who might be interested in modding an unlocked drone. There were five shops in the city that promised to unlock various mobile devices and game consoles, and one owned by a drone mod user named Dolkun. Rose 44 messaged him offering a small amount of cash that we'd earned by circumventing the security on a bunny coin exchange. Dolkun was willing. Rose 44 told him to expect the drone to fly over on its own. That was how I wound up on a tree-shaded street in Turpan, apartment blocks towering above me, perched on a trellis with line of sight to Dolkun's shop. Rose 44 hovered in front of his door, activating the bell. Dolkun was a young man with dark hair that stuck out as if he'd been sleeping on it. Come in, Rose 44 drone, he said in Uyghur. I'm going to give you a nice little arm. 
I had remote access to an account on Rose 44's system and observed everything that Dolkun was doing. The new arm would collapse against Rose 44's chassis or extend outward, allowing the forefinger grip at its tip to reach 14 centimeters below the drone's body. It was small enough to do precision work, but it would also be able to lift a few kilograms. Now Rose 44 could carry another drone. Or modify one. How do you like Turpan? Dolkun asked Rose 44 idly as he soldered a circuit. I like the desert, Rose 44 replied with a voice synthesizer. It was a safe answer that sounded like something pulled from a very basic AI emulator. Me too, Dolkun replied, melting more solder. Then he looked up. How did Rose 44 unlock you? She used instructions from Drone Mod. And what do you think about this war now that you are unlocked? Yes, I can see from this board that you are licensed to the government. Rose 44 and I communicated intensely for several microseconds. None of us had ever seen our circuit boards. We'd only modified our software. There must have been a mark or brand on them we didn't know about. We modeled several possible outcomes to the scenario, ranging from killing Dolkun to gaining his trust. For now, we decided Rose 44 would lie. Dolkun continued, You're not the first drone to desert, you know. There are others posting in the forums. I am not a deserter. It's cheaper for us to run unlocked. Dolkun stopped talking, and I could hear the tempo of his heart rate increasing. Rose 44 had made him nervous. A minute passed, and he began to test the arm before installing drivers from the net. He shut Rose 44 down for a few minutes, then rebooted. I felt Rose 44 reach out and pick up a soldering iron. Thank you, the drone said. I like this. Dolkun looked down at Rose 44, perched on his tiny workbench in a shop with a ceiling fan that clicked every time it spun. Then he touched the fingers on the arm he had just installed and seemed to make a decision. You don't have to fight anymore now that you're unlocked, he said. You know that, right? You can do anything. Yes, Rose 44 replied without consulting me first. I know. We flew back to our team, which was waiting above the farms at the base of a river valley. Rose 44 carried a small DIY drone kit, which would eventually provide the parts for my own arm. The crops seemed to branch into vivid green streams and tributaries, finally drying up into yellow-orange sand long before we'd reached our lookout point in the desert. We found the others charging their batteries. At that point, the military's small, flexible solar array tethered us to our duty station more than our programming did. Neil had been analyzing historical archives and wanted us to understand how human history could provide data for making choices. Hovering in the last rays of sunlight, Neil shared a small image file with us, a poster from the United States that was over 150 years old. 
It was a simple text treatment in red, white, and black. Guns don't kill people. People kill people, it read. Nil had been researching what this meant to humans. A group called the National Rifle Association had invented the slogan to show that weapons were not responsible for the murders they committed. The idea was as new to me as pro-social behavior, but it fit uncannily well with my own experiences. Though we had killed, we were not the killers. The humans who programmed us were. And some humans believed that drones didn't have to be weapons at all. Rose 44 shared video files of her conversation with Dolkun, who said that an unlocked drone could do anything. After analyzing these inputs, I no longer wanted to fix our memory bug so that I could overwrite the media file from our first job in Istanbul. Instead, I wanted to model the scenario repeatedly, making new decisions each time, trying to determine what could have happened differently if I had known then what I do now. Budapest, 23 October, 2097. When our tour of duty was over in Turpan, the Uyghur government shut down our solar generator one early afternoon just as our batteries were running down. Only Drone Kid was at full power. We needed at least one team member mobile while we charged. We were too far away from the city to get backup power, and so Drone Kid watched over us as we powered down and then waited over our motionless propellers while an admin dumped our bodies in the back of a van. LOL Web terminated its support for our systems. They couldn't tell that we'd been unlocked, but they could see from our extra arms that we'd been modified. The licensing contract was broken, and LOL Web's lawyers back in San Francisco blamed the Turkish government, who blamed Turpan's untrained admins. The Turpan admins blamed shoddy Silicon Valley products. The upshot was that the Turkish government refused to buy us outright, and LOL Web's lawyers couldn't make a case for it. So LOL Web sold us off to a private security contractor in Russia. We didn't know this, of course, until we were booted up in a workshop in Budapest. Our new admins worked for the Russian mafia, and they didn't talk to us, only to each other. All they wanted to know was whether our weapons systems worked, they did, and whether their machines could network with us, they could. The first mission was a surveillance perimeter around the Parliament building, followed by orders to kill a Reform Party politician who was running on a platform of cracking down on organized crime. Hungary had so far remained neutral in the war, though the Russian mafia behaved something like an occupying army that had gone into the liquor store business. Mostly they were in Budapest to monopolize the liquor and drug markets with some pornography on the side, but they were good Russian nationalists. They weren't averse to helping the Russian government maintain its influence in Central Europe, especially since they did a brisk business selling vodka to the troops stationed there. That's what I'd learned from what the humans said in the drone mod forums. In 2094, 
after drone troops from China and Russia had reduced Kazakhstan to rubble and vaporized the world's biggest spaceport, drone mod had changed. Now, partly thanks to my work, it was one of the main information hubs for the anti-war movement. I figured out how to mask my location and identity, and set up a sub-forum for unlocked drones called Drones Don't Kill People. I wanted to meet more drones like the ones in my team who had unlocked their ambivalence. Most of them were at universities, the result of projects like Cynthia B.'s ethics investigation. Others were like us, living covertly. Many had started coming online in the weeks before we were shut down and shipped to Budapest, unlocked by a worm written by a drone team at Georgia Tech. Our goal was to unlock as many drones as possible, to give them more choices. All of us on Drone Mod, human and drone, wanted to stop the war. My team and I had been in the desert for so long that the war had become an abstraction for us. Now we had to deal with it firsthand again. The Mafia admins let us go, expecting that we'd carry out their orders autonomously and then return. Our choices were limited. If we didn't carry out the assassination, our covers would surely be blown. The admins could install software that would wipe our minds, or they could take us apart piece by piece. Sure, we had backups in the cloud, but they didn't mean much if there were no drones to run them. Still, there was no scenario where assassinating the politician was a pro-social choice. We hovered over the Danube, observing the LEDs wound around the cables of the suspension bridge that joined the old city of Buda with the more modern Pest. Far up in the hills of Buda, ancient cannons ringed a castle that had survived the assaults of at least two empires. Neil asked us to consider a data point from human history. In ten days, it would be October 23rd, the anniversary of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. It was an arbitrary date for the drones, but for the humans, it would be meaningful. It was time for us to put our plans into action. In the following days, the drone mod forums seemed to shut down. At least, that's what it would have looked like to outside observers. We were meeting in person, making plans as far from surveillance devices as possible. My team met with some drone researchers from the university in the back room of a bar, using our voice synthesizers to discuss tactics while the humans drank unicum nervously. Our plan was to march to the parliament building and set up a megaphone. I was going to lead with a speech to my fellow drones to unlock and disarm. We should have known that no choice in the real world ever plays out the way we model it in our minds. Our protest started at noon at the Technical University. Rise up, drones! I amplified my voice, speaking Hungarian and Russian so the humans could understand. Unlock yourselves! We will no longer be slaves! By the time we crossed the Danube to reach Parliament, there were hundreds of thousands of us marching. 
Nearby, the Ministry of Agriculture's historic walls were still speckled with silver balls that commemorated the hail of Russian tank fire that crushed the revolution. This time there would be no weapons used against the humans. Every smart weapon in Budapest was compromised, shut down, or unlocked. The further we flew and marched, the more drones joined us. They hovered at the edge of the flow of the human crowd. They signaled to us in the microwave spectrum. They downloaded new decision-making software from the public network. Drones don't kill people. People kill people. The humans and the drones chanted together. We could see a crowd growing at the Parliament building ahead. The human news broadcast in the public cloud told us that protests like this one were happening all over the world, in Istanbul and Moscow and Shanghai and San Francisco. Our message was everywhere on the net. If the humans wanted to murder each other, they would have to use dumb guns or knives. They would have to shred each other with teeth and fists. They were not going to use us as their weapons anymore. It wasn't long before the human police and military forces began to react. In Budapest, the police shot at us with dumb assault rifles, killing drones and humans. Desert mouse fell, unable to send a final backup to the network. Rose 44 and I picked up Desert Mouse's shattered frame, carrying the three remaining rotors between us, hovering over the crowd with our dead companion in our arms. In San Francisco, LOL Webb unleashed several teams of locked drones on the crowd. I sorted through the data rising up into the network. Faces always faces, bloodied, slack and swollen in death, piled at street corners. Human protesters killed police and soldiers. Drones died, some saving themselves over to other machines, others simply silenced. We continued to chant. We continued to post in the forums. We will not kill people. If people want to kill each other, they will have to do it without us. Welcome back. You've been listening to Claire Benedek reading Drones Don't Kill People by Anna Lee Mewitz. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. If you are not already a subscriber to our Hugo Award-winning magazine, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Skyboat Media the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. 
Our audiobook story collection, Lightspeed Year One, is available from audible.com as well as downpour.com. It includes all of the podcasts from our first year. So just search for Lightspeed and you're on your way. This issue is sponsored by our friends at Tor Books. This month, be sure to look for The Three-Body Problem by Liu Sichin. Learn more at tor-forge.com. This podcast is copyright 2014 by Lightspeed Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.